Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is season 6 and episode 12 of our podcast, and today is Sunday the 11th of July. I hope you're having a nice warm summer in the Northern Hemisphere, and I hope the winter is not too dire and cold in the Southern Hemisphere. And yes, because we have, of course, listeners all over the world, which is great. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, I'm speaking to you from Austria, from its capital Vienna, well from the outskirts of its capital Vienna. And my guest today will be Stuart Clellan, Stuart who has written recently a book about the Elu Cohen's, this um, well, I might call it a bit strange, but highly interesting Masonic group, which is more of a magical group. We will learn about that. And that also gives the explanation why we have a subtitle, which is called Magic or Masonry? Question mark. So this is not uh, something for people only interested in Masonry. All on the contrary, it's a very magical subject that we are going to talk about here today. Before we go there yet, let me just give you another few thoughts. Uh, first of all, happy to have you here. Happy to have you here if you are coming back to this podcast. And uh, I wish you a heartly welcome to that. And um, also, uh, I would like to welcome all of you who are here for the very first time. It's great to have you with us here. And for both of you, if you want to go back and listen to former episodes, to recent episodes, all the episodes that we have ever done, you can do that on our website, which is thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. While you're there, why not giving me a feedback uh, on info at thoughthermes.com or maybe also through uh, the contact page that we have on that website. There is also a voicemail that you can use. But if you prefer, you can go on Facebook or on Twitter and send me messages there. Let me have your feedback, your ideas, your thoughts, your criticism, all of that. And once again, I'm telling you, if somebody of you is a musician, then I would love to hear from you if you're a musician and uh, occultist, for example, and you have produced the music that you would like me to play on this show. It always happens again. It will happen next week again. It will happen kind of today. We'll hear about that also just in a moment. And um, it's always nice to have that participation of my audience here in the show. Right. Um, what else is there to say? Well, of course, of course, that uh, you are kindly invited to become supporters of this show. We need your support. We need 
your financial support as well, of course, not only your moral support. And um, I would ask you to go on the Patreon page, patreon.com, and look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast, or even easier, go on our website, thoughtshermes.com, and you'll find the Patreon button there. From $1 per episode, you can become a patron and you can even limit your monthly contribution anyway. So there's really a possibility for almost everyone who could just help us to make that uh, podcast sustainable and carry on doing it the way we do without any publicity and uh, free of other stuff uh, also around that we would not like to have appear here. Right. Okay, and um, if you want to make a one-off donation, then that's also possible on the webpage. There is the donation button, which could help. Well, thank you for listening to all of that. Now, let's go into some music now. While I was preparing for this show um, about the Elu Cohen, as I said earlier, um, well, I was Googling, as I often do, to find some material, to find some thoughts. And as it happened, I came across a musician who uses the name Elu Cohen for his music. Of course, there's also bits of occultist music in there. And, uh, well, I thought, well, that is a perfect thing for this show. Elu Cohen is uh, based in Mexico and uh, I will post his links for his Facebook page but also for his Audiomac page where you can find more of his music on the show notes uh, of this of this uh, episode but um, so I believe his name is Ricardo and um, he is playing well all different types of musical does also a lot of covering um, but uh, here today we are going to hear two of his of his own of his own pieces uh, and um, the first piece that I chose uh, is given the name of something that us occultists often kind of fear I don't know why maybe it's a bit too exaggerated but mercury retrograde well we've just come out of it June 22nd was the end of the second time we had Mercury retrograde this year. Now we are all relieved from that until the end of September where Mercury will be in retrograde once again. But for now Mercury retrograde is just a piece of music and it's a piece of music by Elu Cohen as the musicians go by his artist's name and we're going to hear that piece of his right now. Elu Cohen Retro Mercury retrograde enjoy <music> Thank you. 
Valkyrie Retrograde by Elu Cohen, our guest musician here today, who kindly, when I found his music, agreed that we play his music. And thank you for that. And I think it was worth it. Right, Elu Cohen, as I said, is the subject here today of the whole podcast episode. And it's the green book of the Elu Cohens that we're going to talk about to its author, Stuart Cleland. Well, to be precise, there were actually three participants in making that book. Next to Stuart, to I think the main part of that book, there is also Joseph Vegas, who is not an unknown to us, who has edited that book. And then the designer, Steve Adams, had an important part in it as well, because if you buy the book, you will see that the design, given that there's a lot of facsimile pages of the original manuscript we are talking here about, was an important part of making that book. And the book was made by Louis Masonic, who is, which we have presented here several times with new books. They are doing an excellent job, especially in the field, of course, of Masonic, um, the Masonic library that you want to build. Right, so um, as always, I would like to give you a short introduction by reading a short excerpt from the book that we are going to present, and here it comes, and I read you a little part of the introduction. As the high degrees of Ecossais Freemasonry swept across the landscape of 18th century Europe, an obscure and occult order began to develop known as the Order of Night Masons Elect Cohen of the Universe. Characterized by the practice of Gnostic infused form of Judeo-Christian Theosophy, with a Kabbalistic veneer, the Eleucian represented a high point in continental Freemason research for its own meaning. Requiring the, the utmost commitment and a decidedly monastic way of life, the order prescribed everything from hairstyle to diet, and with it a very distinct theosophical mythic millenarianism. Indeed, far from the everyday festivities of mainstream Freemasonry, the Eleucoans saw themselves as knightly priests engaged in a form of cosmic theological combat with angelic and demonic entities. Drawing its membership from the bourgeois and aristocratic, the rites of the Elu Cohen instructed its initiates, or rather emulators, in how best to enter into ecstatic relations with celestial and angelical spirits sympathetic to mankind's fallen state. The operating Cohen could, it was believed, thereby obtain providential favor on the path towards ultimate cosmic reintegration with the divine. I told you it was a really interesting group that we are talking about here. There are still remains of it here today, which are a bit different, of course. Monastic life is maybe less something that has, can be asked for by an occult group by its members today. But anyway, listen to Stuart, who will tell you much more and much more in detail about that. I have to say something about the order of things in this show here today, which is a bit, bit, little bit different from what you are maybe used to. Um, of course, we're coming back after about 30 minutes with a piece of music, but I'm not going to announce that in the middle of the show, because 
It's music that Stuart Cleland, our guest, came up with himself suddenly. Uh, well, a day before the show, he told me, you know, I also do some music. Would you want to play this piece? And I said, yes, but you have to announce it. Okay, so in the middle of the interview, suddenly I'll ask him to announce his own piece of music. And that's when we're going to hear his music, which I'm not going to say more about it. At the moment, he will say all that by himself. And... Then we return to the second part of the interview and as usual after the interview there will be the third piece of music and that will be again by our guest musician here today Elu Cohen and the piece he is going to perform for us then is called Shining. Okay so let's go and meet Stuart Cleland now and I hope you do enjoy our talk. Here comes the interview. As you will be able to hear in a few moments, uh, my guest that who I'm visiting here today, we are meeting him. Well, I don't know if we are meeting him actually in Scotland, but he is from Scotland. And uh, I'm happy to introduce you here today to Stuart Cleland. Um, Stuart, hi, good evening. It's lovely to have you here. Hi there. It's lovely to be here too. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, the, the reason why we meet Stuart is that you have recently um, published a book with Louis Masonic, with that great British Masonic uh, publisher, uh, on the Green Book of the Elu Cohen's. And we're going to talk in length about that. Um, but um, before we maybe delve into the book itself, uh, of course, we are going to talk about you, who you are and what brought you to do that work. But also, um, I think it will be necessary to explain a bit about the Elu Cohen's, about that order, um, which has had a short but intense history, if I'm, if I'm correct, and its full name is Order of Night Masons, Elect Priests of the Universe, uh, which already by that name shows there's something to say about it. So maybe you can give us a short introduction on the Elucoans, who they were, and um, yeah, how we should approach them. Well, certainly. I mean, the Elo Cohen's are a fascinating subject. By the name alone, you can tell that there's something beyond uh, the everyday festivities of Freemasonry. Their aspirations are cosmic, universal. We're talking about uh, a Masonic order who uh, go beyond uh, much of what we understand to be Freemasonry. This is an order that uh, came into existence uh, in its, the heyday, really, was the 1760s in uh, Enlightenment France. What we have is an order that was put together by a man known as Martinez de Pasquale, uh, something of a wandering mystic and, and mason within uh, the, the landscape of 18th century France. The, the Elo Cohen's were labouring to, to bring about an apocalypse. They were withdrawn from the world in order to work Masonic ritual in a way that would in fact change the entire universe that we were in. This is one of the first kind of fully formed magical orders and I think the Elkoans are of interest to people beyond Freemasonry. I think anyone that's interested in ceremonial magic, anyone that's interested in the, the origins of the, the Golden Dawn or uh, the influence that the uh, Elkoans might have had upon uh, occultism in the last, uh, from at least uh, the, the, uh, the 19th century onwards, this book uh, has given us a, a real insight into what was happening. 
The Elo Cohens were a magical order that co-opted Freemasonry in order to uh, work a form of ceremonial magic. Its founder, Martinez de Pasquale, recruited from amongst the bourgeoisie, the aristocratic and the military. And it really was an order that saw themselves as spiritual warriors. They worked ritual, a ceremonial magic that was intended to draw down angelic and demonic entities which could be battled, that could be combated in order to bring about a great restoration back to a pre-Adamic age. For the Elo Cohens, they were practicing what they believed to be a, a primitive cult, a uh, original form of worship that was given by God to Adam and passed on down through the ages. Now, my day job is teaching religion and the word cult is not a word that I would normally use, but this is a word that Pasquale himself used. So to use anything else would be anachronistic. And it is, in their mind, a cult, a uh, secret wisdom practice that has been passed down through the ages to which masonry would be the final inheritor. And this primitive cult, through the practice of it, we would reach a true nobility and a gnosis that would bring about a complete change in the universe, a complete reintegration into the divine. My interest in the Elo Cohen's is something that's focused on the what we call the doctrine of reintegration. This is the idea or the mythos that underpins the magical practices of the Elo Cohen's and Martinez de Pasquale. And it's that doctrine, the theosophy, the Masonic theosophy, that goes on beyond the existence of the Elo Cohen's. It is a theosophy that is then picked up by some of Pasquale's greatest disciples, members like uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, Jean-Baptiste Willemos. And it's that doctrine of reintegration, this idea that man can labour towards a complete oneness with God that uh, goes on through the centuries, which go on to form the backbone of what's known as Martinism, a spiritualised form of Freemasonry that's uh, having a bit of a renaissance uh, in this day and age, but was something that was really formalised into uh, or reformalised in the, the, the 19th century by French uh, Masonic mystics. Highly interesting, really. I mean, there's so much in there. We should pick that a little bit more apart, maybe. Um, am I completely off topic if I'm saying that some of the content of reintegration and the old cult and finding God again in its pure form, so to speak, is also something that reminds us a bit of the Qatars and the old Gnostic school, the Valdens schools, the, the Qatars, or is that a completely different type of school? Well, I think that it's a different type of school of Gnosticism, uh, but mm. Pasquale's system is a form of Gnosticism. Uh, Pasquale finds no pleasure in the world. In the Cohen system, matter is inert, it's muted, it's mere prison for mankind. Pasquale is looking to destroy this uh, corrupted, degenerated world uh, and reintegrate it back to its former self. So in the sense of Gnosticism, whatever that phrase means uh, it certainly is uh, an, a Gnostic form of cosmology. 
uh, in my research, I, I find that Pasquale is a, a man who combines Gnostic philosophy or Gnostic cosmology with the everyday world that he has round about him. Mm-hmm. Pasquale was a man who was a royalist, a man out of touch with his age. We're talking about the time of the Enlightenment, and Pasquale represents a kind of counter-Enlightenment. He's someone who is very much missing the, the divine royal court of the, the French, and he sees a, in cosmic cosmology a mirror of the French royal court God is the celestial king, the sun god, and we're going to return back to a hierarchical, traditionalist, divine right uh, form of a society. This apocalypse that's coming is a destruction of the, the rationalism, the enlightenment values, the cosmopolitanism that was prevalent in French lodges. And for Pasquale and men like him, it's a return to a golden age, a paradisical age of hierarchies, whether that's hierarchies of nobility or hierarchies of angels. Somehow, of course, that reminds us also of the early 19th or late nine, uh, sorry, or early 20th century, um, late 19th century form of traditionalism, but without the apocalyptical aspect, of course. Um, but how strong is that apocalyptical aspect with Martin, with Pasquale? Is, is it something that is related also to some traditional Christian um, forms of apocalyptical thought, or is it different? Well, I believe it's defining. I believe that uh, we can use Pasquale's own words to describe the order as a cult. And I believe the apocalypticism of it means that it's quite fair to refer to the Eloquins as quite literally a, an end of the world cult in high French Masonic garb. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Uh, that's using the, 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 the beliefs in the, in, the, in the terms of the order themselves. And this idea of reintegration and the destruction of the material world is, is what really defines the, the Eloquins. Now, whether we read this today in a way that is seen as a psychological apocalypse, as an apocalypse of the old self, uh, uh, something that's within the mind, or do we read it as something that's a very literal uh, uh, revelation, a, a complete uh, return to a pre-Eden stage? Uh, me, personally, I believe that the primary source is Pasquale believed in a very literal end of the world, a very literal apocalypse of the material realm. Whether or not that's the case for modern day practitioners, that's beyond my remit. But for Pasquale, his entire Eloquian system is rooted in Catholicism. Now, what Pasquale's uh, interpretation of uh, Catholicism is, is is quite heterodox and he really rejects some fundamental principles within Catholicism. But nevertheless, for him uh, to be an Eloquian, you must be a, a practicing Roman Catholic. The rituals required the attendance of mass. Uh, and really, uh, if one can't accept the transmutation, the trans, uh, transubstantiation of the Roman mass, you would not be able to accept uh, uh, the theogy of Eloquo and a uh, ritual, like how the priest is able to draw down Christ within the bread and wine. The Cohen is drawing down Christ, the shows into the host that is in the material world 
to transform it in some kind of al alchemical-like sense. Uh, and Catholic apocalypticism, the whole tradition of that, the idea of the uh, end of the world and the return of Christ is a huge part of how I would characterize the Ellicoan system. And there it is a rarity because what we know nowadays of, about apocalyptical movements is more in the Protestant and even evangelical world and not so much in the Catholic world, of course. It is interesting, but I think Pasquale is a, a researcher. I think he's a man who is magpie-like and there's a lot of Jacques of Burma within a, the, the, a, the, the makeup of the Eloquo and theosophy. There's bits of Gnosticism, bits of Kabbalah. The myth is that Pasquale's family were involved in the Spanish Inquisition and any books that were confiscated were kept in a secret family library to which he had access and it's there that he mined the theories for his philosophy. I don't know how true that is but it's a lovely story. Yeah, it's funny. He, he was Spanish himself, wasn't he, Madrid de Pascali? Well, his biography is sparse. We don't know a great deal about him, but the, 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 prevail, uh, the, the prevailing theory is that he was, uh, he was Spanish, and a Jewish, a converso to Catholicism. Uh, however, uh, a lot of his uh, Kabbalistic ideas seem to be kind of idiosyncratic. He seems to really struggle with his Hebrew. His ideas are always a kind of half-cocked version of a Kabbalistic Lurianic philosophy, which kind of reveals to me that he, he may not have been that familiar with the primary sources, which kind of goes against the narrative that we have his biography, but uh, still a lot of work to be done in that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. What I find personally, but I think I'm not the only one, um, highly interesting to the point of being almost irritating is that relationship that he built to masonry because, and of course, even when we talk about masonry in its history, not in contemporary masonry, but his approach seems so far away that you wonder how he could draw all what he's talking about into masonry and make it a link. How, how do you think that works and how could you explain how it can work in his world? Well, I try not to be reductive when I speak about Pasquale in his ideas. I do believe that we have to respect him as a genuine revelation. However, there are some realities behind it. I mean, Freemasonry, is a, it was a system that was there in place. It was common. It was a, a convenient way in which to gather men round to be able to put forward your ideas. There was a mythos there that could be built on a structure. There's a whole a reality there that can be used to your own advantage and Pasquale does that, he co-ops masonry as a vehicle for his own uh, philosophy uh, referring to what we would call regular Freemasonry is corrupt, that there's been a corruption and that Freemasonry was given to Adam by God, this was this primitive cult that he was reinstigating within Freemasonry I think it can still be called Freemasonry to an extent until we get to the very highest grade known as the Ruqua, which is almost kind of clearly beyond Masonry. But the, the, the framework there is really 
emblematic of what's happening with occultists all the time with Freemasonry. He's using the craft, he's using the, the degrees as a clearinghouse, as a way to vet initiates to move on to other things. And Pasquale's uh, philosophy is really centred around the idea of God, the temple and man. And the, it's a, an analogy for him to be able to express his own ideas and the uh, way in which he rewrites masonry gives a, a genuine spiritual goal, something that for people today is, is still a, a genuine goal to masonry. It is no longer a, a personal uh, endeavour. It's something that's trying to heal the world. I don't think it's a coincidence that Pasquale's highest grade was known as the Rue Croix. When we look back at the uh, Rosicrucian texts such as a farmer where it talks about healing the world gratis well this is what Pasquale is doing and he is making a, an order that is a, a Rosicrucian form of monasticism a Masonic monasticism where you are retreating from the world and working towards the benefit of all through the labor of the individual Mm -hmm. so I was going to ask the order Rocroix that Rocroix degree you is it common? Is it common use that this is something that is related to Rose Croix? It's just another pronunciation, or 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 is that just coincidence? I, I don't. I think. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think, of course, it's coming for the high degree system that's already in place within the French lodges at the time. The French right are working Rosicrucian night degrees, the Rocroix degrees, uh, and I think you know often without any recourse to the Rosicrucian tradition. But in Pasquale's case, I, I do believe that. Uh, he uh, is well read in his un understanding of the the, the Paracelsian tradition, the Christian Pietist tradition, the Jacob Burma. Indeed, mm -hmm. Louis Claude de Saint Martin, uh, Pasquale's closest disciple, said that it was Burma that was the root of it all. So I think that uh, Pasquale is conscious of his heterodoxies, of his kind of magpie like way, and I don't think it would be a contradiction for him uh, to bring in Protestant radical ideas about the uh, apocalypticism and mix it with Catholic monasticism with a bit of Freemasonry and a bit of Kabbalah and a bit of Gnosticism thrown in at the same time. Uh, I think for him there is a, as mentioned, a Prisca Theologica, a pristine theology, a true wisdom tradition that is scattered amongst the degrees and systems of Europe and like occultists of the 19th century, the likes of Arthur Waite, for example, he's mining the degrees, mining the mm -hmm. tradition for this authentic lost tradition uh, that has to be rewritten for every new generation. And uh, for Pasquale, uh, he finds it in a kind of ecstatic form of HSA Freemasonry. Ecstatic is a probably a very good word for that, absolutely. I mean, it is an interesting coincidence that um, Pasquale then uh, suddenly arrives in Haiti uh, at around the time where others uh, leaving France also arrive in Haiti and then carry on to go to create the Scottish, was known as, today as the Scottish Rite in South Carolina. But uh, is, there any, um, is there any proof that those people might have crossed paths in Haiti and have met and, and 
even work together at some point? Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, the Bailu manuscript has a part of the Cohen system within it. We know that these people would have met Stephen Moran, would have been uh, personally known to Pasquale. The two will have met and corresponded. I think for most, though, the more interesting connection in Haiti is the idea that the Cohen system went on to influence voodoo or local voodoo uh, traditions. It is something that's really debatable. We, we don't have the evidence as yet, but it's hard to look at the the the, the sigils and signs and uh, symbol symbolism of uh, Haitian voodoo and not see some kind of parallel with the the, the uh, sigils and symbolism and the hieroglyphs of the Elokoan system. For me personally, I do think if there is an influence that's going from the Elokoans out into the, the community, out into the local uh, voodoo community. I don't believe, as some people have suggested, that the voodoo was an influence on the Elokoans. I just mm. don't think it works that way. Uh, this is something that needs a lot of work and I would imagine a lot of work on the ground. And Well, it's a long way from Scotland to Haiti. <laughs> definitely, definitely, even today. <laughs> yeah, but maybe an interesting task to, 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 to put on. So, that, which brings me to you yourself, Stuart, because we have spoken about Lynn Quinn, and thank you for explaining this really clearly and in depth to, to our audience here. You know, we have an audience here who is, I think, very well knowledgeable and in all different kinds of paths. But of course, this is a very particular path, and, and, and we have to give a bit more attention to that. But now let's go to yourself, Stuart. Um, give us a bit of your personal background and what interested you in that. And maybe also if you have some practical uh, aspects in your life that relate to masonry or, 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 or magic or whatever, if you want to talk about that. It's free to you, of course. Thank you. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, my background is, is uh, um, obviously Scottish and I was raised in an area of Scotland known as Ayrshire, which uh, to anyone who's interested in Freemasonry is, you know, is the area of Kilwinning, a name that's strong within the high degrees. And I grew up in that area where the Knights Templar are supposed to have landed and you've got uh, the oldest lodge in the world, Mother Kilwinning, and Freemasonry is a part of the, the, the culture there, uh, but not in the way that it seems to be uh, in other places in the world very much uh, masonry in the west coast of Scotland is it's almost like a folk tradition it's something that your grandfather and it was very low key it's apart for a working man working class type of type of thing and ideas of spirituality aren't really discussed even amongst the, the masons of that uh, that area but growing up uh, I was always intrigued by Freemasonry I seen the lodges round about me uh, and when you come to these ideas it's often an American view of what Freemasonry is and never anything to do with places like Scotland or Spain or Italy or the experience of Freemasonry like most of the world has uh, and I was always really attracted to it and growing up I was uh, a great fan of Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin and, and music and mm. you know I liked a lot of, kind of black metal and that type of thing I was always attracted to the this kind of uh, the spirituality that some heavy uh, metal or, or some kind of uh, black metal uh, bands had I always liked that kind of uh, intensity to the to the music and uh, been totally uh, enamored by Jimmy Page watching him the song remains the same climbing up the hill at the back
like a burlesque house with a hermit, things like that. Mm-hmm. So this this led me into studying philosophy at university. I studied philosophy, fine art at Dundee University, and uh, I was very interested in the ideas of Immanuel Kant and the Friedrich Nietzsche and their ideas on aesthetics and art, uh, and the especially Nietzsche when he's speaking about the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And I was looking at Jim Morrison and I'm going, that's Dionysus, that's Dionysus. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, then I moved on to do a, a master's degree in Western esotericism at Exeter University. And that's really when the, my academic study of, of Western mysticism uh, happened. And I really tried to use that to explore Freemasonry. I really wanted to understand it as a spiritual tradition. I understood it as a, as a social product, a, 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 a social network, a dining society, or you know something like the Rotary Club. But I always knew there was something there, even if the Masons themselves didn't agree with me. Uh, I was I was what I learned more about it, and I did my my master's degree and was interested in Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, Hermeticism, and how these ideas came into to Freemasonry. And I was always really enchanted with this idea of Scottish Freemasonry that had nothing to do with Scotland, you know, and in France and in Germany. And I grew up in a place where Bonnie Prince Charlie and Robert Burns and all these characters were were part of a tradition. And the Masonic aspect of it is never spoken about. It was kind of like peeling a layer back to your hometown, finding out this whole wider uh, spiritual uh, heritage. It turns out, you know, for some people, Scotland is becoming like a, a new a new Jerusalem, a kind of northern <laughs> yeah. Solomonic kingdom, yeah. uh, which. Me and my house in the post-industrial wasteland of, <laughs> of the West Coast in Ayrshire just seem amazing to me. And since then, I've been working away as best I can on understanding how what the boundaries are between esotericism and Freemasonry and how these ideas interconnect and how, how that is in reality and how that is in the minds of the, the members and the minds of the, the text and 18th century uh, documents. It's a wonderful time just now for academic research and along with Joe Wages and Steve Adams and many other uh, authors that will be familiar to, to the listeners of this podcast, manuscripts are being digitised, museums are opening up. It's the time where scholars, uh, Masonic scholars, are sharing things, constantly trading back for it. It's like something in the 17th century just now. Mm. Uh, and people in remote parts of the world, like myself, are sitting with laptops and phones and getting access to the world's archives. And we work together, like this book has been co-authored with two other people. I think it's a way forward for Masonic research that people are going to work together, chip away at it, a community a endeavor to try and make a, a more clear picture of the, the the occult and esoteric aspects of Freemasonry. For too long, there's been Masonic journals that focus purely on the a, the idol of origin or a, the, the, the names and dates and the actual beliefs and ideas of the Freemasons that we've been studying get thrown out the, wa- uh, thrown out the window. People aren't interested in what they actually believed. Uh, just want to know what pub they worked in and what date it was founded. I think yeah. things are changing. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I was in. Uh, I was hit by when you said that that uh, Pasquale um, wanted to create the uh, original Adam again, right? And also that's why he used masonry because that's what we find in Anderson's um, in Anderson's texts, of course, in Reverend Anderson's texts in the seventeen twenties already. He was Scottish, also, by the way, <laughs> and 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 uh, that certainly is an idea where Freemasonry takes a completely different aspect uh, and you should not take that literally but for its meaning and its background meaning that it has shouldn't you mm -hmm. but I, mean, I think that's this is a real area of research that i'm interested in the idea of scotland uh, within freemasonry is multi-layered you have you know the the literal geographical area that's a uh, maybe uh, emphasized by the scholars like david stevenson who are trying to prove the literal historical origins but you also have scotland as a typology, as a way to try and describe certain degrees within the 18th century. You also get Scotland as a, a Masonic ideal uh, in the way that we may speak about the East. We speak about Scotland, or I should say, uh, is, a, is an orientation, perhaps, is a perception. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's multi-layered, and it can be difficult when you're looking into Masonic uh, scholarship, I think even for scholars, but certainly for the, the layperson to try and strip away this idea what do they mean by Scotland? Is it a concept? Is it a place? Is it a time? Is it a reality? Is it a state of mind? And it seems to be all these things and more for, for Freemasonry in the last 200 years, 300 years. Scotland being the East, that's a very good example. When you create a new temple for any type of ceremonial magic, you define the East, which doesn't have to be geographical East, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's an image. And that's what Scotland is for, for certainly many types of at least masonry, if not more, in the occult world, right? Well, certainly. I mean, even within, you know, Thelema, it's, you've got Baleskin House. It's uh, the, 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 the Thelemic Mecca is in Scotland about yeah. an hour away from my front door. But you having grown up there, and you mentioned that uh, when you said that masonry up there in your part of the world has been something very um, rooted, say, let's say, put it that way. And did that have an, a practical effect on you? Were you surrounded by people, even in your family, who were active masons or working other types of uh, spiritual work in that sense? No, no, I'm afraid not. There's a lot of preconceived ideas about Freemasonry in Scotland, one being mainly that it's a, the same as a, an organisation known as the, the Orange Order, which is a, a, an order of a Protestantism uh, that enjoys uh, or celebrates uh, the glorious revolution, the, the Protestant mm. supremacy within Northern Ireland and, and, and Scotland. And uh, growing up, there's a big tradition uh, where I'm from of, of uh, uh, marches pipe band marches and often these take historical roots past chapels and Catholic areas and it's a, a divisive a tradition but it is a tradition nonetheless and, and then much of the Orange Order had co-opted the symbolism, the framework, the functions of a Freemasonry so for the layperson it's the same thing and a, for members of my family people that knew me it's difficult to try and distinguish between the two, it's still a problem 
problem in Scotland today. Uh, that uh, to be a mason is not to be a bigot, uh, and the uh, the reality is far from that. But uh, no, no, it was. Uh, not something that he was warmly welcomed uh, amongst all quarters of my hometown. No, I wasn't aware of that link between Orangism and, and, and well, at least in minds of people, Orangism and Freemasonry. Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I find it, it's, it's quite funny. It's, uh, people speak about Freemasonry as a conspiracy. The Freemasons are mm -hmm. taking over the world. But time and time again, you see Freemasonry taken over by other people, taken over by the Orange Order, taken over by Pasquale, taken over by the Illuminati. They're always taken over by, by other groups and uh, it's, it kind of goes against the narrative that that is a really interesting point he has never seen it like that but you're you're absolutely right and um again question if you don't want to answer it i absolutely understand but do you do you practice anything in the world of the occult or uh, are you a pure academic uh, in in your work Well, I think there's different ways in which you can approach uh, esotericism. You can approach it from the inside, the emic way of uh, believing in a, 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 a real literal secret wisdom tradition. Uh, and uh, you look at the, 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 the teachings and the degrees from that perspective. You've got the historical critical point of view where you don't believe in the spiritual reality of these uh, orders and degrees and traditions. You're looking purely at it as uh, a effect of politics, economics, social changes. And there's where I would put myself, the religionist point of view, where you're trying to appreciate these uh, traditions on their own terms, realizing that these are real uh, revelations people believed in them taking the claims of the degrees the claims of the text is valuable as a starting point for further explanation and further exploration uh, whilst still using the uh, best scholarship that you can find Now, without avoiding the question, I would say that I do try and keep a middle path between the two. And uh, I believe that uh, academic work can be a spiritual practice in itself. The reading, the writing, that is my uh, form of uh, mysticism. I believe in uh, being able to uh, become a one way a tradition through studying it, through realizing the implications, the theories, the notions in themselves without that official son of modern day kind of anachronistic interpretations. I would say that I'm a spiritual man and uh, I gain a lot from my studies uh, and I would not claim to be anyone who is a ceremonial magician or a, anything like that, but uh, I'm certainly part of a few initiated traditions and uh, that informs my work, uh, but it uh, doesn't limit my uh, scholarly mm. uh, Objectivity. Yes, objectivity. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Now, uh, We're going to do a, a first in this show, in this uh, podcast, because normally I take a break here and play some music and I do a little talk about the music I present. And we're also going to do and play music today. But today um, I'm not going to do an announcement. You are <laughs> because because Stuart um, has told me 
actually a few hours before we started recording today that he has also produced some music and he has been kind enough to send it to me so that we can play it in this show now. Uh, but Stuart, tell us just a little bit about it and what brought you to produce that and what is it? What are we going to hear? So uh, in a past life, uh, I used to be someone who was hip and cool and played in bands and enjoyed uh, playing the guitar. And the, the piece of music that you're going to hear today is a bit of music I uh, put together a few years ago when I was going through my, my Jimmy Page fanaticism. Uh, and the, uh, I hope that it's something that you enjoy. It's uh, me playing the guitar to a, a track. It's just a piece of instrumental music. And uh, I thought it would be uh, fun to include this in the, 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 the interview today. Uh, the song's called Jack Rabbit Slims and uh, I hope you enjoy.
So that was Jürgen's own music. And I'm really happy that for the first time we have the, 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 the author of the music himself introducing his music. So thank you, Stuart, for that. And congratulations. Hope you do some music f f later on again. That's it. It would be worth it, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, definitely. Hopefully, if I could get 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 the guitar out of the cupboard and uh, dust off the tweed and get the, the guitar out instead, then hopefully uh, uh, I'll have some more for you in the future. Well, music is a form of magic as well. So it's certainly not stranger to what we are talking about here. And... Um, Let's go back to the Aluku and, and uh, what we have not really touched yet that before we go in, in depth into the book um, is the Elucoans of the 21st century, because they still do exist. But I think in a bit of a different approach, if I'm not wrong, it came down through Villermos and his strict observance problems there and uh, uh, went right into the Rite Ecosse Rectifié, the Rectified Scottish Rite. Am I right with that? And, and what is the situation of the Elucoans today? What do they work after? So yes, the, the eloquent doctrine, not the practices, but the doctrine of reintegration was uh, saved in many ways. It was put into a secret class of degrees with, uh, of Willem Moses' own rectified Scottish rite, known as the profess class, the profess and the grand profess. And these were the, the, the mythos, the, the theosophy that uh, was, was retained. Willem Moses gave up on the practices. They were not maintained by the other disciple known as Louis-Claude de Martas, eh, de, de Saint-Martin, <laughs> Louis-Claude Saint-Martin, eh, eh, but the ideas were, and for me that's, that is the, the value in the system, it's uh, the theosophy, the, the belief system behind it, eh, and after time this dies away. Unfortunately, we there is a gap in the Cohen, the doctrine of reintegration, and it's not until a, the the beginning of the the nineteenth, the twentieth century that there is reforms a, happening. Basically. Papus in 19th century France during the decadent period uh, revives a form of Martinism. Martinism is a kind of condensed version of the doctrines of uh, Pasquale, Saint-Martin and Willemoz into one unique system, again centred around the doctrine of reintegration. Now, that's what we call Martinism today. That's what we mean by Martinism today, isn't it? That's right. right that's right. Mm -hmm. And uh, often uh, Martinism, as it exists today, uh, is its own kind of vehicle informed by the doctrine of reintegration. Some have Elocoan orders within it, some of the higher degrades. But for most uh, Martinists, it is based on the ideas of Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin. His ideas, he never had a formal system of initiation. It was more like a salon culture. And in the 19th century, Papus reformed a form of Martinism and a, a Masonic system. And this continued on for, for a number of years until about uh, the 1930s, 1940s, we have a resurgence of an Elocoan order by Robert Amberlan, which is completely uh, inaccurate. But we cannot blame him too much to begin with because much of the manuscript material has been lost. He didn't have access to what we have today. Uh, however, 
the manuscript that has been translated and forms the basis of our book, the Green Book of the Ella Cohen, is a manuscript known as the, the Algiers Manuscript, and it was found on a market in Algiers. And it is basically a notebook of uh, Rukwa, uh, initiated in many ways a, a grimoire uh, kept by a Rukwa initiate. And that was given to Robert Amberlan, who kept that from his initiates. He was working a system that he knew to be inaccurate, whilst he had the accurate system. Uh, eventually, he disbands his eloquence. Now, you could say maybe he felt guilt, maybe he knew that he was teaching something that was not an, uh, authentic, even if that is important to him. Uh, and Or maybe when you read, uh, anyone who reads the book will see that the, the, the commitment that's required, the discipline, the uh, training, the uh, need for uh, rooms, houses, the money, the expense, the time, that the original Rukwa went through is just not possible for the 21st century or the 20th century. We're well, speaking about men who were bourgeoisie, aristocratic, who had money to burn and very little else to do, who had huge mansions in order to devote themselves to something. Someone in the 1950s and 1960s isn't going to be able to, to live an authentic reenactment eh, of the Ellicoan system. Now, over time, more has become available, revisions have been made. Uh, my understanding is today that there's Cohen orders out there who are doing excellent work with the research and really trying to, to rebuild it uh, in a way that's authentic to the original system. Uh, I'm very well aware that uh, the Ella Cohen system is a lived religion, it's a, a lived spiritual reality, and it should be spoken about and treated with a compassion and sympathetic neutrality, and it should be spoken about a, with care, that this is someone's lived reality. A, and my approach to it is not intended to criticise that, but to try and illuminate it and open it up a, to, to the wider academic community. There will be uh, other people who disagree, but uh, that's the intention anyway. Mm -hmm. A devout Roman Catholic would not be very happy with regular Freemasonry in general, right? Would a devout Roman Catholic be more happy with the approach in Lucoen even nowadays takes? I suspect not. If it's a, a re and re-engineering, a reconstruction of the original system and all its parts, I think they would be pretty much appalled by it, to be honest. Mm. Well, Pasquale himself doesn't believe in the Trinity. So he believes in one God, not in three uh, parts, three, three, uh, three uh, manifestations of God in the Trinity, which is a fundamental doctrine within Catholicism. Sure. Uh, they would not have agreed with, uh, you know, the practice of theurgy, of drawing down angels and demons and trying to, uh, you know, control them. Within the Rukwa degree itself, uh, there is the use of uh, magical implements, there's use of sacrifice, animal mutilation. These are all things that are kind of beyond the pale. And uh, a big thing about the, the, the Cohen order is it was not for the faint of heart. 
uh, whilst there were uh, the aristocratic and the bourgeois, there were certainly military men there, men who would have killed, seen violence, uh, who would have been uh, involved in war. And uh, really, the Cohen system is combat. You're fighting. You're fighting for the sake of uh, all humanity. And it is a, a regime that is involved with discipline, diet, how you dress, what clothes you wear. You know, it was really a, an all-encompassing uh, lifestyle that uh, not everyone, even at the time, maintained or could maintain. Uh, whilst we talk about them today and they seem to have a, a strong impact in forms of esotericism and esoteric masonry, the, you're not talking about a lot of people. You're not talking about an order that lasted very long. You'd be lucky if there was more than 60 individuals in total who were involved with this order at the time when you think of the thousands who would have been involved in mainstream Freemasonry or at least the, yeah. the, the ecosse degrees, the, the other forms of Freemasonry at the time. But if, if you meet someone today, in France especially today, who tells you I am an Ilu Cohen, because that exists, I have met people personally among Freemasons, who, which I am, um, and they told me we were practicing the Scottish rectified right in France, as many lodges do, and I have gone further in the higher degrees, and now I am an Ilu Cohen. Um, how much is that still related to what we have here in the in the green book well who am i to criticize someone's spiritual uh, identity not criticizing him no 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 <laughs> but, but I, I, i hear what yeah. you say is i think it's a really yeah. fundamental question i think mm. you know uh, freemasonry is uh, internally diverse martinism is uh, internally diverse and yeah. who a martinist is for one is not necessarily who a martinist is for another mm. i think a uh, Pasquale taught that the primitive cult had to be rewritten for every age, that it had to be transformed to meet the needs of each aeon that it was within, as it would become corrupted. And any innovations or changes for me are well within the spirit of the original system. Mm -hmm. From a historical point of view, are people today working the exact same thing that uh, Pasquale was working? No, I don't believe they are. They tend to uh, ignore the, the difficult parts like uh, are you actually cutting the tongue, brain and cheeks from a, a rodea and burning them in your house? Are you actually uh, practicing Roman Catholic and everything that comes with that? Are you going to mass before you have your operations? Are you sleeping in seven hour intervals? Are you fasting for three days? Do your rituals involve you being locked in a room for three days, groveling and praying and prostrate on the floor? Probably not, but maybe, mm. maybe it's possible. Yeah, I, I haven't met anybody doing that. And I'm not sure for me coming from that kind of Calvinist background in the Presbyterian Scotland that locking away yourself in a room and doing magical rituals to better the world is the best way to do that. Uh, and Again, I could be wrong, but in my experience, it's mainly been people from the kind of uh, Anglo-American background that I have met who believed themselves to be Cohen's, and uh, mm -hmm. there seems to be a lot more online than it does within magical circles. But 
again, who am I to make judgment on somebody's spirituality? If someone uh, identifies as a Cohen, then uh, fair play to them. And uh, I've got plenty to talk to them about. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the same is true if, if you do the Abramelin uh, manuscript, of course. Uh, it will be hard to do in the 21st century also that, and there's a, That's a pretty true. different, there's a a different level. A wonderful crossover between the two. I mean, I would say that the Elo Cohen isn't just of interest to your Masons or your esoteric Masons. I think anyone interested in the Alistair Crowley, the Abramelin or the Lemma would be interested in the, mm. the Elo Cohens. As really, this is a fully formed magical order with grades uh, involving different uh, magical operations. And before becoming an initiate, an initiate for the Ruqua, a candidate was required to go through a process known as reconciliation. Now, reconciliation was to be reconciled with your guardian angel. And within the Elo Cohen system, this is known as a bon compagnon, your good companion. And once you had become reconciled with your guardian angel, you were then able to become part of that spiritual elite who was going to use their knowledge and their experience to heal the entire world. So I think there's clear parallels to be made between that and the Abramelin and the, we're talking about the 1760s. Absolutely. Uh, so it would be of interest, I believe, for anyone with an interest in, in what happened at Baleskin House. Very interesting, very good. Now let's go to the book finally. I hold it in hand here. It's a lovely green book, as its title says. Um, t- tell me the Manuscrit d'Alger, uh, it bears the date 1772. And that's where it's supposed to be written. But when was it found again on that market in Algiers? When did that happen approximately? Well, I believe about the 1730s. Ah, okay. So it was rather, rather around, around us. Okay. Okay. An old, an old thing, so to speak. Yes. Okay. So, um, but what, what happened that it got into your hands, so to speak? What uh, happened that you were starting translating it? How did you share work with Joe Vegas and, um, and your other colleague, Steve Adams? Um, how did you, uh, how did it all get together? What what happened that you could create that work? It's a lovely piece. It's not only translation. It has the whole facsimile part also of the manuscript itself. It's full of hieroglyphs which look like sigils. It's 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 amazing. I mean, it's it's a, it must have been a huge amount of work. It was. It took quite a long time and there's been quite a few revisions of it. And really from start to end, we're talking about six years uh, that's mm-hmm. taken to go through. Really the history of the manuscript is it was found, as I say, in a market in Algiers in the, uh, the, the 1930s, I believe. Uh, and it was passed to Robert Amberland, who held the document for a long, long time in his own private collection, uh, not known to, to, to anyone really. Publishing extracts from it every now and again, but keeping it to himself for a variety of reasons. As he began to age, he made arrangements for it to be put into the Bibliothèque Nationale Française under the understanding that no duplicates, copies, photocopies, uh, photocopies or access was to be available for 20 years after he died. That time expired. Copies were then became available. Uh, and uh, I was working quite a lot in correspondence with Joseph Vegas and uh, a number of different projects. And he knew that I had an interest in the Ella Cohen's. But of course, 
English language material is so sparse and it's really difficult to try and find anything that hasn't been through the filter of Martinism or Martinist orders or has been revived and uh, he passed a document on to me. Uh, and we started transcribing it and translating it, which was a hellish task. Uh, I, I must say that my uh, language skills and my transcription skills are, are casual, to say the least, and it took a learned on the job, as it were. Uh, and we worked through it, and uh, we eventually got the, the, a translation uh, that we were happy with. And then it was about looking for related documents to it. The sigils that you see are from a, a separate manuscript. It's really relevant for understanding the, the system of the Elocons as well. Uh, and it's known as the 2,400 Kabbalistic names uh, and the hieroglyphic signs. Now, what these were was basically when you were doing your Elocon operations, uh, when you had become reconciled to your holy guardian angel, a sign, a luminous glyph would appear in a room. And that luminous glyph was the sign. That was you knowing that you had now become connected to your guardian angel. And your job was to memorize that sign and look it up in a catalogue of 2,400 signs and names that was given to you by Pasquale to find the name of your holy guardian angel. This was the signature, as it were. Some people have spoke about that document being like a phone book of angels uh, and it would appear in the sky. Now, uh, it's supposed to be thousands of, uh, of sigils, but it isn't really because it, it, some of them are repeated. Most of them are repeated four times in different positions. The, the idea is that the luminous glyph was a three-dimensional three object. So you had to be able to recognize it from different points of perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then you would know who you were dealing with, who was on your side, uh, and you could then use them to help uh, bring about ultimate regeneration for the entire cosmos. You are then a, a knight priest of the universe. S sounds almost a bit like Enochian as well, right? Oh, I, I believe so. I mean, as I say, uh, uh, there's a lot here in this uh, order. It's very much a hodgepodge and uh, a bit from here, a bit from there into this recipe that is uh, Pasquale's own uh, system. But of course, that would make sense. You, you wouldn't want to make something new. Something new is not going to be good. It's got to be ancient. You're rediscovering the primitive sure. cult, so you have to mine what's already there. Uh, and, and again, we, we have to bear in mind just how... Uh, accessible a lot of material was in the past. I think we've got this idea that people weren't trading manuscripts, that you couldn't find this material, but they were, especially if you had money and a name uh, and you were uh, a French aristocratic noble. Yeah. Just to place it in time, Robert Rambelay, who you mentioned, he died, I think he, he went, was very old when he died, 90 or so. Yes. He died in 97, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so access 20 years later, Indeed, it has been only a few years that this manuscript was accessible to, to the public, right? Yes, and I mean, what I would say is it's accessible today. It's, uh, it's on the website. I would encourage people to go and look at the primary sources. The entire point of uh, this book is to get people to look at the primary sources. You do not need to join an order. 
this is something that can be done. Uh, I'm here in the north of Scotland with a, a, a mobile a mobile phone and a, a, an internet access, and I'm able to translate this material for myself. Uh, the book comes from me trying to find out about this order for myself, and as uh, more museums start digitising material, as more uh, information starts to become available, uh, I would encourage others to do the same, work as a community, work together, uh, and bring this material to the wider market uh, and, and help uh, individual seekers to, to come to these uh, traditions and understand them from what they are. You mentioned earlier on uh, about the Eluco and having a, a kind of traditionalist feel to it. And it's true. I mean, the Eluco is, is interested in, you know, divine right and inherited wisdom. Uh, whilst the doctrine of reintegration uh, is also a doctrine of degradation. It's the world has been degraded and who we choose to call degenerates uh, is a, 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 a complex thing and a, a, a something that sadly is part of the world that we live in today and too often can a, a, a spiritual tradition be co-opted for political means and yeah. to, to give more of the primary documents to the English-speaking world, I believe, is doing a service to stop traditions such as this getting into the uh, philosophies that would call others and regard the world as a, an evil, degenerate place a, and a, show some light on these a, philosophies so they're not manipulated into a, political stances that are less than savoury today. I think that's a very important point you're making, which is not only true for this manuscript, but it is true very much for large parts of the occult world, because it is not only misunderstood sometimes, it's also abused sometimes in that respect. Uh, now, when you read a few of, the, I'm just picking a few uh, headlines of the manuscript just to show people uh, the titles which seem like a grimoire sometimes, like it's Work on Adam or First Prayer to the Head in the North, uh, Benediction of the Candles, etc. It sounds like a Golden Dawn manuscript sometimes. I mean, not when you go then into the rituals, but as titles, it's, it, is it, can it be used as a grimoire in your in point of view, or is it a purely historical text? Oh, I believe there's enough there to work with. I believe that there are people who are working these systems in a way that is, uh, if not the whole system, partial. Uh, we know, I know, and have seen English translations of Cohen rituals in uh, England in the 1860s, 1870s of men like George Irwin, uh, men like William Westcott, Samuel McGregor Mathers. This is something that uh, was of real interest to those occult revivalists. Uh, Here we are with the Golden Dawn, exactly. Yeah. So I do not believe that it's a, a far cry from this to the Golden Dawn, or at least a, an inspiration. An inspiration, something that could help uh, build the order. Have I got a documentary evidence yet? No, but uh, the men involved were very much interested in the doctrine of reintegration and the rituals of Pasquale. Mm -hmm. um, in what respect uh, for this book, this book that I'm holding in hands, those parts that were uh, reprinted in a facsimile way, 
are important? Why did you choose to go that way? Um, is it because the facsimile shows some special aspects which in a translation can't get through? Or why was it important to you that those parts existed? Well, there's obviously the, the hieroglyphic seals, the luminous glyphs that uh, would lose something without being shown in their uh, facsimile form. These are the, the signatures of the angels. And even for the layman, looking at the signatures of angels is a, a beautiful notion. And for them to be there as they were drawn, I think was important. You'll also mm -hmm. find there that there's wonderful examples of ecstatic drawings of Ella Cohen a theosophy these kind of naive drawings of a 18th century outsider art. I mean, these are wonderful impressions of philosophical and theosophical ideas. When we think about the whole tradition of theosophical art, we've got it here in the 1760s. I think even an art historian, something that I have a background in, would be fascinated by these ideas. And at the moment, uh, there's a debate on exactly what it is that they depict. But these are images very, again, similar to some uh, images of Alistair Crowley's or the, the, the Golden Dawn. You've got here the snake, you've got the stars, yeah. you've got the man, you've got the, the, the pentacle star, you've got the, the magical circles. And uh, one, I suspect, uh, the, the, what's happening in the background there is a, a kind of a representation of the, the, the mythos of the degrees, what's happening to the candidates spiritually as they work their way through the different grades of the order. However, it, it could be a, a kind of ecstatic revelation that the, the, the uh, Prunel Delia, the, the author, has committed to ink, committed to page. Uh, there's quite a lot of debate about what's happening in the mind of the, uh, the Ruqua. You're talking about people who have been uh, deprived of sleep who have been prostrate, repeating mantras, basically, lengthy, lengthy prayers in a room full of special incense that is caustic, that we know would have had an effect in the mind of these kind of drug-induced art, is it drug-induced forms of uh, visions, apocalyptic visions. There's still work to be done in those images, but they need to be out there for people to see, even those that are not interested in the Elo Cohen as a, a part of our history. I believe these images from this esoteric order are, are, are wonderful and should be seen by a, a wider a market, a wider group of people. And the, whilst they are a complex and intriguing, I'm sure if anything, that the book's going to help or encourage others to look into these and unlock some of the mysteries of the eloquence. Delier, you mentioned he was the author of the Alger's manuscript, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, do you know, or can you, I'm sure you do know, but can you tell us briefly something about his background, who he was? Well... We have quite a sad picture, or at least in my mind, a sad picture of the of Delieri. Uh, published in the 1930s was collections of letters, correspondences between uh, Pasquale, Willemoz and Delia and other members of the Elder Cohen. And 
poor Delia seems demented by Pasquale. He seems to be constantly chasing him up, waiting for instruction, waiting for degrees, waiting for uh, help and running the order. And he's such a sincere mason, such a sincere candidate for the order. And time and again, the, the, Pasquale is the most disorganized human being I think I've ever come across. He's in debt and poor Delia is having to pay his debts. He's disappearing with money that belongs to temples. Uh, and uh, Delia is writing to Willemos and writing to Pasquale, begging him, at the same time calling him his holy master. For Delia, Pasquale is very much a, 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 a prophet type figure. And yet he seems to constantly be let down. And in the original manuscript, it's a messy manuscript. You've got amendments and crossed out uh, sections, letters from Pasquale that are scribbled over, revisions. We know in at least uh, up till 1765, there was only five degrees of the Ellicoan system, uh, which would eventually go on to have 11. So it's never been a fixed fit system. It was always in a, uh, a state of flux. It was always in a, a state of change and evolution. Uh, and Delia, the, the poor man, is doing his best to try and keep up with this supposedly traditional system that's been about since the dawn of time. Hmm. I'm fascinated by the snakes, the serpents he's drawing there in those in those facsimiles. It's quite a strong image, which is almost, I mean, the serpent is a rather a Middle Eastern symbol in a way, right? Well, it is, yeah. I mean, again, it's uh, the Cohen's work in a lunar calendar, which seems quite Islamic. Yeah. Could be part yeah. of that. If, yeah. if Pasquale is coming up from uh, from Spain, there is uh, Moorish Spain. They could be. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably a lot to do with the the, the Arabic, uh, um, like the Picatrix and the the the, the, the different grimoires yeah. that are coming out yeah. being retained uh, within mm. the Islamic. A culture at the time and it's possible uh, that that's where it came from but it's also a deeply biblical image as well and sure it, sure. it could be coming from that why is he called the green book anyway the binding okay that's purely that's, visual it's, it's just a shorthand yeah. that has uh, right. been used uh, uh, it's a snappy title the green book it's uh, actually within the, the the actual contents of the manuscript they make reference to a white book a blue book. Mm. So I believe that uh, the binding of your notebook was important. It was uh, reflecting maybe the grade that you have because you have like the red band and the green band. But uh, there were definitely colour-coded notebooks uh, for different aspects of it. And what we have here is a green one. Right. Well, Stuart, this was a real, a real fascinating hour in your company. Thank you so much. I have a final question for you, which is also the subtitle of this episode. And uh, well, the subtitle doesn't have a question mark, but here I put the question mark. Um, the subtitle is Magic or Masonry. So is what the L.U. Cohen's do in your personal point of view, is it magic or is it masonry? I believe it to be magic. And I believe that the question that the Ella Cohen's asks me is, uh, what apocalypse do I believe in? If Pasquale was working hard to bring about the end of the world, if he believed that he was going to bring about a utopia, what am I trying to bring? What am I working towards? Am I trying to immortalize the eschaton like Pasquale? Are we trying to do it today? 
What will happen when I get that college degree? What will happen when uh, the pandemic's over? What will happen when lockdowns have uh, finished? What is this reintegration that I am working towards or we are working towards and what's happening just now? Well, nothing to add to that, Stuart. Thank you so much. Great to have you here on the show and take care and good luck for all your future projects. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Shining by Elu Cohen. And Elu Cohen, in that case, is a musician from Mexico who goes by that name and who happily accepted that we play his two pieces of music this on this show. Of course, which makes sense as we were speaking with our guest Stuart Cleland on his book, The Green Book of the Elu Cohen, and we're hearing a lot about that group, that Masonic group. And I learned once again, as I often do in this show, an awful lot when I'm speaking to my guests here. So I do hope you enjoyed this show just as much as me. Just to remind you, because the sequence of things was a bit different this time, the piece of music that we were listening to in the middle of the interview was by our guest Stuart Cleland himself and uh, really enjoyed that he brought along his own music this time which is quite a rare thing and his piece was called The Neon Lowe's Jack Rabbit Slims 20, from 2019. Uh, he talked about that himself. So, um, well, this was it for today. This was episode 12 of our season 6. It was lovely to have you with me here. And I hope you'll be back again next week. Next week, well, who's our guest? We are going back uh, into the Egyptian realm once again. And uh, rather recently, a new book has been released, which I really find glorious, which is called Amduat. Those of you who know what Amduat means, of course, know that it is uh, a name for the underworld that the Egyptians believed in. And um, But... Our guest, Diana Craycamp, she has issued that book on the subject, but it's much more than just a description of Egyptian history. It's like she, as a, as a, as a working ceremonial magician, has found her own path through Amduat. And, well, she's going to talk about that much more than I would like to do here now. And I would only like to give you a teaser for what to expect next week. So come back next Sunday, July the 18th, listen to Diana Craycamp, and we will certainly enjoy that talk about Amduat. Right, that was it for today, guys. So thanks for listening once again, and I can only tell you now, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>